Psalm, I meant to, Romans 8, 16. Read it with me. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I suppose there are times when we all um, kind of get uh, kind of nostalgic and, and, and we kind of reminisce. And the older you get, the more you do that, I've noticed. You know, talking about how it used to be and, and all that, kind of reminiscing. You know how that goes. I've listened to some of you. And uh, there are certain things that kind of trigger that nostalgia, those feelings of nostalgia certain smells. If I ever go into a, a mall where they got one of these cinnamon uh, bakeries, you know, where they're baking these cinnamon rolls, I get this, this kind of a sad feeling. It, it, it um, reminds me when I was a kid, you know, cold winter days, you get off the bus, run in the house, and my mother always cooked those big old hot cinnamon rolls. And the house would be filled with the smell of that. She'd always let me have one, you know, before supper time. And I go in a mall, and I'll smell those, and just immediately there are those thoughts of my childhood, kind of sentimental, you know, and nostalgic. You remember when uh, Barbara Streisand came out with that song, The Way We Were? Brought a little tear to your eye, you know, as you listen to her sing that, The Way We Were. And, and I suppose that we all, you know, have gone back to wish that we could have it like it used to be, you know, when we were healthy had no problems. It seems like that, that the older you get and the farther you are removed from, from your youth, the more it seems that there were no problems back then, you know. I mean, you didn't have 
all this pressure from job and all these bills you owe, you know, and, and you didn't have all this pain, you know, these pains and aches that are uh, attendant to, to, to the, you know, to the senior age. You'll get there. You can laugh about it all you, but you'll be there one of these days. And uh, it seems like that the farther you get away from that time, the more it seems like that, that um, back then you didn't ever have any suffering, any problems. Oh, to be the way it used to be. And some of us view suffering and hardship and, and problems um, as enemies of God, as enemies rather than as these special things, that special tools that God prefers to use, wanted. Maturity without pain. We'd like to have maturity without pain. We'd like to have patience without irritation. You know, um, that's like saying I want a baby without the mess. You know, without the wet diapers and uh, and late night, midnight feedings. As a matter of fact, you can do that now. You knew that, didn't you? They've got for nineteen ninety five. You can rent a video baby. True story. And, and for 13 minutes, you can have this baby on video, VCR, and you can watch him coo and gurgle, and, and uh, you can take him for a walk. True story. If you don't want a video baby, you can get a video doll. But anyway, video babies, and, and 13 minutes, you can have this baby in your house. You can always take it out of the VCR before it wets his diaper. You know, I mean, got it just like... Um, I'd like to have maturity without... Uh, pain without groaning, but it just isn't possible. As a matter of fact, this text makes it clear, watch this, that you cannot have glory without groan. There's no cross, there's no crown. There's no pain, there's no gain. As a matter of fact, you could write across the top of this text the benefits of groaning. Now look at it with me. In verse 16, he he, um, he talks about the Spirit Himself who bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And He comes into this passage on groaning, on suffering, out of this declaration of praise that the Spirit has been given us, the Spirit of God, and, and this Spirit of God witnesses to with our spirit that we are His children. Then He says in verse 17, And if... Children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if. Now everything's going fine until we get to that word if. If. Now we use that word as, you know, as it relates to the possibility of something. Now I'm not sure, but it could be the potential. You see what I'm saying? We use the word if with regard to not something for certain, but something with the possibility or potential to be certain. But in Paul's day, in the Greek construction, believe it or not, there is a Greek construction where that word is used not with regard to possibility, not as if it's saying, I'm not sure about this. But it uses that word as to mean for sure. And as a matter of fact, you could translate the word if with the word since and get the right meaning. As a matter of fact, that's the word, that, that's the construction that's used when the devil came to Jesus in the wilderness, tempting him and said, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. Now he wasn't, there wasn't in the mind of, of, of the devil any kind of um, uh, 
doubt about whether or not Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, you could translate the word since there, and it works better. Since you are the Son of God, he was saying, turn these stones to bread. And what Paul is saying is this. Now, it might be that you're going to suffer in this life, and there is the potential that might come if you have to suffer in life. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, for sure, for sure, we suffer with Him. And because we suffer with Him, we'll be glorified with Him. And the glory is directly related to the suffering. As a matter of fact, it's attended with and dependent upon. In other words, when and because we suffer, we glory. Now, there are certain things that we know about suffering, and there are some things we don't know about it. Sometime you get a little chance, I want you to turn over to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, and you'll find this word, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. What John is saying is this, We don't know all of the shaping, but we do know the ultimate result of the shaping. We don't know how that God is going to choose to shape us into the image of His Son. We just know that He's going to shape us into the image of His Son. And sometimes that shaping will take the form of sickness. and Sometimes the shaping will take the form of the loss of a job or the loss of status. And sometimes that shaping will come in the breakdown of a relationship or a home. We know this, that God has the, the intention of the development of our lives into the image of His Son, and we just don't know how He's going to get there, you see. And with that in mind, the Apostle Paul says, Now let's look then, let's compare this present life with the glory that's to come. Um, this sermon ought to be delivered, not the sermon I'm preaching, but this message of this text ought to be delivered to every hospital room. It ought to be preached in every convalescent center. It ought to be preached in every jail. It ought to be preached where people groan. What Paul is saying is this, Now in light of the fact that God has chosen and, and, and it is His prerogative to choose the methods of the shaping, and we don't know what they're going to be. We just know the ultimate result is we're going to be like Him. In light of that, let's compare the present with the future. And he says there in verse 18, he says, you know, it's not, there, there is no way you can even compare the two. It's like comparing the Atlantic Ocean with a thimble of water. There's no comparison. What he's saying is this, that if you're going through a process of groaning, it's not always going to be like this. Thank God for that. It's wonderful to be able to stand in the presence of people who groan. Maybe they just lost a loved one. I'm going to preach a funeral tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Hardly a week goes by, I don't preach a funeral, on average. It's good to be able to stand in the presence of people who have suffered loss, who are going through the process of groaning and say to them, and really know it's true, it's not always going to be like this. It's not always going to be like it is now. And then he applies the whole illustration to something that is totally related to, to, to unrelated to a human experience. He applies it to nature. Did you see that when I read through there? You have a Bible, don't you? Now, I do like to use a Bible, and uh, it does help to have one and follow along with this. You don't see it in your, you know, with your eyes. I mean, he takes this application of the, of, the, of the benefits of the groaning 
And he makes the application to something that's totally unrelated to human life. He, relate, he, he, he makes the application relate to creation, to nature. And, and he says, let's read it in verse 19 again. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. That anxious longing is a, is a word in the Greek that means literally the stretching of the head. It's the picture of somebody stretching their neck eagerly, eagerly looking for something. Some celebrities coming by, so you and a group of people, you're stretching your necks if you can see them. J.B. Phillips has a marvelous translation of this. He says, the whole world is standing on tiptoe, eagerly anticipating, eagerly watching for something to happen. This is what he said in verse 19. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And he gives four principles. The first is this. You gotta, if you've got your uh, worksheet there, Four principles. The first is this, that groaning is temporary. Groaning is temporary. The suffering through which you may be passing, and somebody's watching on television tonight from the hospital bed. I never, never preach a sermon on somebody on Sunday night. Somebody doesn't see it from the hospital. I go to the hospital on Monday morning. Somebody always stops me and says, I saw you last night on that set right there, you know, in the hospital. Somebody's watching tonight from the hospital. There are people who are watching tonight. It's amazing how many people watch on television who are members of other denominations but who are unable to attend their worship service. So they watch us on Sunday night. There are people watching tonight on television who are going through experience of groaning. There are some of you just like that here. You've lost a loved one. You've, lost, you've had loss. You've had experiences of failure. The groaning is only temporary. This thing's not going to last forever. Barclay says, there is a groan in this earth. You hear it? You're out jogging in the morning early before the sun comes up. Can you hear that groan that exists in this earth? And when you retire in the evening and there's a little bit of stillness and quiet and the television's turned off, can you just hear this suffering, this old world experiences? There is a groaning. It's temporary. Secondly, this groaning that we experience in, in nature, in life, is, is a consequence. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will. It didn't choose it. It wasn't, it wasn't its choice. But because of Him who subjected it. Now, with your Bible in hand, I want you to turn back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. The first chapter of Genesis... What I want to show you here is how it was before the fall of man and how and what happened as the result of the fall of man. How it was before man sinned. Look in verse 29 of chapter 1. Then God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was a time when this old creation, this old earth, the creation of God was perfect. And God saw it was good. It was Wonderful. 
Can you imagine what it was like to live in the Garden of Eden before sin? I mean, until the flood came in Noah's day, it had never rained. The earth had an underground irrigation system. You know, it just, the, the moisture just moistened the earth so that there wasn't a cloud, there wasn't a storm, there wasn't any rain. It was just perfect. And God looked on this creation and saw that it was good. And it was. Until chapter 3, verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And you can hear the trees saying, Wait a minute. You know, I didn't do anything wrong. And you can hear the ground sighing and saying, Wait, nobody asked me if they could curse the ground. I didn't do, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. But the suffering, now watch this, the suffering of this old created world was the consequence, the fallout of sin. Now we can spend a lifetime trying to figure out why some people have to suffer. Why the people in Ethiopia, you know, all that kind of stuff, in their volumes, libraries full of books of people trying to give some answer. But the simple answer is this. The groaning that you and I experience is the consequence of the primal sin. and changed. It's the fallout, see. Groaning is a consequence. Third, groaning is a means to an end. Look at verse 21, back to the text, if you kept your finger there in the place. That the creation, that is, in order that, it's a purpose clause there in the Greek, in order that the creation its, itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words... This groaning through which creation passes is for the purpose that it will be purified. And all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul, using the analogy of creation, shows us, gives us a theology of suffering. That the, that the ultimate result of the groaning and the suffering is freedom from evil. We're going to get that in just a minute. Third... This groaning is universal. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The Amplified Bible has it. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of birth till now. Something that the guys tonight, the fathers, don't understand. Birth pain. Thank goodness. Somebody said if they alternated, if you alternated so that the first child was born, was given birth by the mother, and the second ch child was given birth by the father. Most of us would just have one kid, yeah. and it solved the population crisis. Now, I, you know, nowadays, isn't, isn't it true nowadays when when a when a when a when a woman has a baby that the husband goes in the delivery room, you know, with it. I've seen some of the weirdest stuff happen. You know, seminary students, you know, at seminary, I'd go up down there to their, they'd be having their first child. Some of them would take their school books down there with them. Now, that would be, I can just see this mother, you know, and her husband coming in there to do his lessons while she's in there having a baby. Weird stuff. 
And they go in there with these cameras. Now, I just think, <laughs> I'm just grateful that they didn't do that when I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stand it. I mean, I'm so, I was so, such a sissy. I mean, I thought I was going to die just being in the, in the labor room with, with my wife. Going in the delivery room? Give me a break. <laughs> now, can you, see, can you see a guy in the labor room with a camera? He's saying, now, honey, I want to get some nice shots of you in pain there. <laughs> hey, that's a good grimace. Let me get that one. You know, can, you, can you see that? Yeah, I'm going to get that groan on this, on, this, on this recorder. Now, when that mother is able to catch her breath, she's probably going to say, if you don't put that camera up, you're going to be eating that camera. <laughs> have, have you seen these bumper stickers on the back of these cars that says, ask me about my grandkids? Don't do it. <laughs> don't, don't ever do that. Because these grandparents have this, they, they, they open up, it looks just a little bitty kind of a folder of pictures. When they open it, it just drops out. You know, walk like a accordion. has all these grandkids in there. You know, I've never seen a bumper sticker that says, ask me about my daughter's birth pain. You ever know, have you ever seen one of those? You know, just, you know why? We don't take pictures of the pain, of the groan. Because we want, we want to forget about that. What we want are pictures of the glory. It's not ask me about my daughter's birth pains. Ask me about my daughter's kids. They're the ones I want to talk about. Let me tell you what we do. We focus on the birth pain. And we talk about all the suffering we go through. And we moan and groan about all this trouble we have, all this pain we have, all these troubles we have. It's time for somebody to step up and say, I want to I focus on the glory. That's what Paul's doing. He said, I just want you to forget about the pain that you're going through because I want you to understand I want to focus on the glory. Ask me about the glory. We don't have time to talk about the labor. That's the response. Here's the response. You notice that he moves from the principle to the personal. This thing gets exciting. Notice how many times he says the word we in verse 23. He moves from, from nature, from the uh, inanimate, from the non-human into the personal, he says. And not only this, but also we ourselves, we having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. That's our response. Now, um, He's saying that we're going through the groaning now, but we're waiting for the we're waiting for the glory because we've been saved to that hope. You catch that? We're saved. The construction in the Greek. We're saved in hope. Literally, we're saved to that hope. We have that hope because we have been saved. Have you ever noticed that hope always shines its brightest in the midst of the deepest darkness? And so he says, we are standing on tiptoe in eager expectation for the hope to which we have been saved. 
What are you waiting for? Now, there is a kind of a pessimism and an optimism that exists in this world that belongs to the pagan world. You, you, have you ever read the, the play by Samuel Beckett? It came out in the 50s called Waiting for Godot. Some of you read that? Samuel Beckett's? It's this dismal, abysmal, absurd drama about two old bums sitting by some, standing by some spindly uh, tree waiting for this God figure to show up. And he called him Godot, G-O-D-O-T. When I first started preaching, I read that illustration, and I called it Godot. You know, it's, it's, it's not the way you pronounce it. And, and these two tramps bicker and they quibble inanely about their boots and about turnips and whether to hang themselves. And meanwhile, while they wait for this God figure called Samuel Beckett calls Godot, he never shows up. And at the end of every um, uh, stage, at the end of every section of that absurd drama, this messenger shows up and says, he'll be here tomorrow. And he never comes. And in the last scene of this uh, play, Vladimir says, one of the tramps says to the boy, what does he do, this Mr. Godot? And there's silence. He doesn't answer. And so he shouts back again, do you hear me? Yes, sir. Well, presses Vladimir, what does he do? And the boy answers, nothing. Now, there are some people who, in the midst of groaning, just, are just like that. They have this fatal pessimism that believes that God is late for His appointment, may never show up, and is doing absolutely nothing. On the other hand are the people who have been saved to this hope that they stand on their tiptoes in the anticipation that He's coming back to redeem us from the groaning. And that's what Jesus meant when He gave that parable of the lamps. And He said, quote, Be dressed in readiness and keep the lamps abright and be like men who are waiting for their Master. What are you waiting for? Waiting on tiptoe for the redemption Waiting with eagerness, he says in the last part of this. Waiting with eagerness for the redemption, for the one who's coming to redeem us. Now, what is the ground of our hope? Now, watch this. I'm going to wind this up and get out of here. What is the ground of our hope? I was looking at this passage the other day and saw something I've never seen before. I've always preached this thing on the Spirit. I use that in prayer. It, it, it relates to that. But notice this. And in the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. But I don't miss this. You have a creation that groans because it has fallen. The consequence of the fall. And you have a human being, you have a person who groans because he suffers himself. But don't you miss the fact that you have a God who groans along with creation and the sufferer. And what you're suddenly confronted with is the suffering of God. That's the ground of our hope. 
The ground of our hope is that God groans with us, that He is conscious of our agony, and that He's active in the midst of it. And wherever there is suffering, there He is also, that He stands in the midst of our suffering, conscious of it. And He has not absented Himself from human sorrow. The ground of our hope is that God also groans when we groan. And that there is no one tonight who suffers more than God Himself. Now that's difficult to reconcile when you reconcile the sovereignty and the perfection of God. But it's true. And you and I can believe tonight and hope tonight, live in expectation tonight, because we know that while we suffer, He suffers with us. And He says that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. That word helps is a marvelous word. It means, first of all, it means to stand and face somebody and carry the load. And what, what the picture is, is a combination of words to face carrying. What it says is this, that, that, that the Holy Spirit picks up the load because of what He sees in our face. I love it. You hear me? The Holy Spirit picks up the load because He sees the agony in your face. And the way He helps us is in the arena of prayer. Now listen, this ought to make sense. That if every victory is won or lost, every, if, if there's a victory won or if there's a victory lost, it's won or lost in the prayer arena. And that every victory you win is the result of prayer. And every victory you lose, every battle you lose, is the result of prayerlessness. Then the logic is that if God wants to help us, He helps us in prayer. Because that's where the battles won or lost. Makes sense, doesn't it? And that's where we're the weakest. Isn't it true? The place where we are the weakest is in the place of prayer. When does the Holy Spirit help us? He helps us when we're weak. When we don't know how to pray. How does the Holy Spirit help us? With groanings that are too deep for words. He takes our aspiration and our faltering requests and He so fills them with Himself that they become what we can never make them ourselves. So that these prayers rise up acceptable to God. I heard one day of a little boy, somebody came along heard him on his knees saying A, B, C, D, E, F, e, G. He was going through the alphabet. Somebody asked him, what are you doing? He said, I'm praying. He said, well, it sounds like you're just saying the letters of the alphabet to me. He said, well, I don't know how to pray. And I thought if I'd just say the letters, Jesus would take the words, take the letters and put them into the right words. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes to the one who is in the groaning, and He takes those words and fills them with Himself such that makes them such that we can never make them ourselves. Why does He prevail? Because He always prays according to the will of God. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit comes in the midst of our groaning. And because of our groaning, and the result of our groaning, He puts us in a position, a con He conditions us to pray. Let me tell you something. The best praying you'll ever pray is when you're groaning the deepest. Now, I see two applications. I'm through. The greater the groan, 
the greater the glory. You ever been in one of these Nautilus places? You walk in there and there's a big sign up there. No pain, no gain. I saw this poster. Beautiful lady. <laughs> I mean, she'd been working out. No pain, no gain. The greater the groan, the greater the glory. Second, the weaker our spirit, the stronger his support. The weaker our spirit, the stronger his support. Listen to me, and I'll close with this. Our weakness is the greatest qualification for his support. Let's pray together. Before we pray, let me, let me just close with this deal. I just saw it here. Not through yet. Joyce Landorf has a good book called Morning Song. Need to get this for a library. M O U R. You read that book? Morning, M O U R N I N G, Morning Song. And in this book, she, she talks about this painful procedure they were administering to her dying mother to remove this infection from her chest. And here's what it says. I sat there in the room at my mother's bedside and the doctor asked me to take the nurse's place and hold my mother's hand. I came around the bed and was met by the plainly visible force of her agony. There must have been a treatment procedure which was more painful, but I surely doubt it. She managed a small smile and asked me, Is it almost over? I turned and looked across the bed to the doctor. He shook his head, indicating no. It'll be just a little while longer, I lied. Pretty soon her face lit up. Joyce, sing a song for me. Okay, I said. Um... What would you like for me to sing? Expecting her to name some religious song. Sing the sound of music. The song or the whole thing? She said, her mother said, the whole thing. The doctor chimed in, Honey, really, your, da your daughter's tired. I, I doubt if she could sing the whole thing right now. My mother replied, Listen, doctor, honey, if you paid to have as many voice lessons as I have, when I say sing, she sings. The whole room exploded with laughter. I sang the whole thing, and I came down to the last song. The window was open, and a cool breeze was blowing, and she lifted her head toward the window and began to sing with me. I go to the hills when my heart is lonely. I know I will hear what I've heard before. My heart will be blessed with a sound of music, and I'll sing once more. She didn't have to have a religious song. Her faith in God had been confirmed many, many times. She just wanted to sing a song of joy, song of happiness for the hope to which she had been saved. Anybody here groaning tonight? It's time to sing song expressing the hope for which we've been saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have Redeemer 
that we can anticipate stands just around the pain, just around the door, to give hope, joy, and life, freedom, victory. Help us to lean on Him, to trust Him, to sing the songs of the blessed, of the redeemed. For I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake.